This week on Up in the Blue Seats, we flip the switch. Rangers beat writer Larry Brooks interviews me about the old days. I also chat with comedian, actor, and diehard Ranger fan, my friend, Chris Roach. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Hope everyone is staying safe out there and social distancing and enjoying the podcast where you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you're using Apple, rate us five stars and write a nice review. The Post Rangers beat writer Larry Brooks joins us this week as he interviews Ron Duguay, Rangers diehard fan, comedian, and actor Chris Roach also comes on the show and we're asking ron the questions this week so ron duguay we welcome you in the star of the show the host how are you doing during this quarantine i know you like to stay healthy and i know you're really you know staying inside but you're also getting yourself a little workout in in the in the sunny side of florida yes hi jake uh good to be with you in fact i was really looking forward to today because of things have gotten quiet and a little bit bored which is fine when i look back at my last 15 years i think the hardest thing about what I do is getting there is to travel, it's the hotels. So I'm doing my best to uh, enjoy the quiet time. And during my quiet time, I've always had this focus on staying as healthy as I can. And probably I've kicked it up a notch. I pay attention to what I eat and what I drink. I don't think I've had a, a an adult beverage in about a week now. I don't smoke. So I'm very careful about what I eat and drink because it does affect your immune system. And it's always been a challenge for me to not get the flu, although Although this one's a little bit different. It's always a battle and how you do that is, is having a strong immune system. And so a lot of people ask me about some of the things that I do on a daily basis. And the one thing I'm doing now is I'm increased my vitamin C intake. I may be taking three, four uh, milligrams a day. I like to take a little bit of garlic. There's this drink that I like to have. It's called kombucha, which is uh, filled with friendly bacteria in my intestines. And of course, I'm getting proper sleep. And so all these things add up to a stronger immune system. So if I was to come in contact with it, that my body can fight it. So these are things that I'm doing. These are things that I'm encouraging other people to do. And while I'm at the house, you got to find things to do. For some people, there might be a small remodel inside your home. For me, I've enjoyed watching. I go on television. Of course, you go to the NHL channel. You can watch a whole bunch of past playoff games. So I've been doing that and I've been doing Netflix. Overall, it's a mindset. I'm happy. Uh, I'm doing my best to be as healthy as I can. And I encourage everyone to do the same. And my version of vitamin C Ron is taking two uh, vitamin C gummies per day. Unfortunately, here in New York, we don't have the ability to go really outside much. Yesterday actually wasn't that bad, but it's been kind of inconsistent up and down weather, and you try to avoid the outdoors. But it is crazy, man, when you go out there, especially here in New York where the cases are the highest, you see people in, in gloves. Everyone's got gloves. A lot of people have masks, but I see people just sewing upstairs. I mean, they had gloves on their hands just leaving and just going like the convenience store. So uh, it is definitely crazy times, but everyone makes sure. Follow Ron, Dr. Ron. I like that. That could be like its own show in these days. Dr. Ron Duguay. You have the face for TV. Have you ever thought about doing that as, as we flip the switch and we question you? Have you thought about hosting a TV show or getting into reality TV or anything of that elk? 
I would say that I'm open for any of that because I've experienced a lot. I, I can probably talk about a lot of things. And as long as I get to be me and it's all positive, it's not negative. There's no hate. There's no, like some of these reality shows, everybody's backstabbing each other and trying to gain something. As long as it's none of that and it's all positive, it's a good information where I can be a good role model. I'm all in for something like that. Well, in two years, you'll be eligible for the Bachelor Senior Citizen Edition. Once ABC uh, launches that for the 65 and Up Club, uh, you're almost there. You know, glad you're staying safe and, you know, excited for this show because coming up next, Ron, Larry Brooks interviews you. The tide has turned. The veteran himself, the Hall of Fame beat writer, Larry Brooks in the New York Post, who you can follow on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy, will interview Ron Duguay next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. So we're going to do it a little bit differently this week, and I am actually going to pose some questions to Ron Duguay. Actually, I think I did about 45 years ago, or <laughs> whenever it was that I covered you. Um, but let me ask you this, uh, um, Dugues, look, looking, this is all looking back. Do you think that your aura, the long hair, the virile, you know, guy who would go out to Studio 54, do you think that overshadowed you as a player when you were in New York? Well, I, I like to think, for, for me personally, it brought the best out of me because it elevated who I was. You know, it didn't take long before I was noticeable on the ice because of my style, my look, and my type of play. It wasn't something, it wasn't a premeditated thing on my part. I was just being me. When I stepped on the ice, I can remember in training camp, 18,000 people. This was all new to me. Madison Square Garden, wearing a Ranger jersey. I couldn't have been more excited in a way where because I had the ability to skate fast and be noticeable, I became a fan favorite. And as soon as I, I connected to what I was doing with them, it just brought the best out of me. Now, one thing kind of led to another. Of course, you have to score goals. And when you score goals, you get talked about and, you know, from guys like yourself. And that led to things, opportunities opening up where I could go to pretty well any restaurant, any bar. And because I, um, I, I think I like to think that I was very grounded, that I felt like I could do all these things and have my fun and eat my cake and play also, that uh, it kind of went hand in hand. Now, of course, there were days where I probably... Uh, Burned the candle at both ends a little too hard, but I, I really feel like um, people appreciated what I did off the ice and they kind of enjoyed listening and watching what I was doing off the ice. So it, it kind of, I think it, it was a good balance. Did it catch up to me? Probably in my last year, there were times where I started to feel tired and uh, coach Herb Brooks started to see some of that and he started to get on my case. But I think for the most part, people appreciate what I did on the ice and they enjoyed seeing what I was doing off the ice. In fact, I might've shared this with you before, but Sonny Warblin was the president at the time, and he encouraged it. He had uh, Joe Namath, and he saw if he had a player that he felt can do the balance of a little bit of both, that it was uh, it could work. And so he encouraged me to go out and have a good time. And so I was all in. <laughs> And but because I was a grounded guy, came from Sudbury, Ontario, I, I knew my limitations. To me, the game always came first, and I try to protect that. I try to protect my energy. I, I like to think that people appreciated both. You know what I think? I, I think that your aura, though, is is remembered, is appreciated and remembered more far than what you actually did. I mean, you had a pretty good you had a pretty good career. 
I mean, you really did. I mean, 40 goals in 81, 82. I'm just looking now. I, I, I didn't memorize it. And then you get 33 and 38 your first two years after your trade. I mean, you were a pretty good goal scorer, a reliable player. You killed penalties. And, and, and my feeling is now looking back on it is that you're probably remembered more as a, as a personality than you are as a player. Not, you know, not that that's a bad thing. Yeah. And, and I'm fine with that because I understand that hockey is a sport but you're also uh, in the entertainment business. So if you can do both, you become uh, more valuable to a certain extent, depending on who's coaching and who's managing. And so I like to think that, uh, listen, I had fun. I was in New York. It only goes around once and not many players get an opportunity to play in New York, play at Madison Square Garden and live that lifestyle and during a very special time. Yeah, I, I'm fine with uh, how, because I never hear complaints about who I was back then. So I like to think that I'm remembered in a positive way. So I'm, I know, oh, I'm sure you are. You are. So you you play your rookie season. You're 20 years old, the first round draft. So you play your rookie season for Jean-Guy Talbot. And then at 21, your second year, Freddie Shiro comes over. And I'm curious as to your impressions about playing for Freddie. I would say Freddie was probably the perfect coach for me at the time. For two reasons. One, he allowed me to be me. He he understood younger players that uh, were going to go out and have some fun. But as long as he saw the effort that was given on the ice, that he was going to honor that. And with me, there were times where he would be double shifting me. And because I was a big, strong guy, I would just come to camp in good shape. So he could see my conditioning. He can see my determination. We seldom talked. He just let me be me. And if I'd had another coach that would have been judging every little thing that I was doing off the ice, it might have turned out different. So here I am, I'm 21 and just having a whole bunch of fun, but I was producing on the ice. And so he didn't put a bunch of rules on me, which he didn't do with anyone. He just kind of let us be us. And he let the leadership in the dressing room, which at the time was Phil Esposito, he allowed us just to perform. So he was the perfect coach for me at that time. I've told this story before. I've written it many times. And the first time I wrote it was probably in 1978, 79. I, you know, I covered your team that year. But of course, Lucien Deblois was drafted eighth overall in, in the uh, 77 draft. You were drafted 16th overall. And then a couple of picks later comes a player named Mike Bossy, picked by the Islanders. And I remember really one of Freddie's great lines was, I would rather have Duguay play the way he does than Bossy play the way he does. So I guess he did like you as a player. But you actually wind up playing on the line with Bobby Sheehan during the 79 playoffs and he comes up you guys go on this spectacular run just just destroy the flyers you beat la in the first round great great two game series win the second game in overtime destroy the flyers and then you've got of course the battle of new york with the islanders you win that you're the finals and and for years and years and years uh you win the first game on a sunday afternoon mother's day and then there are a couple of days they don't play again till tuesday and you make the decision or the team makes the decision to stay in montreal and there is the you know the folk tale that if you had gotten out of montreal you might have won the cup that year instead of losing the next four games what do you think well if you were let, first let me correct you i was drafted 13th overall and it was mike bossy that went after me he won 16th overall it was a couple of picks you know here or there who cares right the thing is he went after me and so yeah if you were to ask phil esposito about the stanley cup files that's the first thing he says he said i told freddie i told freddie let's get out of town <laughs> phil knew that 
what got us there, what got us to the finals is that it wasn't just what we were doing on the ice. It what was we were doing off the ice. We became so close because we were having so much fun off the ice. Uh, whenever we decided to go out, we went out as one. We were a team. And so we were doing a lot of partying, but it helped in the sense where we were hard to play against because we stood up for each other. And so by the time you get to the finals, now you're into a long season and it's going to start to wear on you. And I think Espo being around, he saw that and he felt like Montreal, you're going to let Dukes and Murdoch and Maloney and aggressor out in Montreal? No way, right? So Espo was trying to get Freddie to get us out of town and Freddie, old school Freddie says, no, I'm not changing the thing. I'm going to keep things the way they are. Would have changed anything? I don't know. I uh, Because we did play hard. The bottom line is we got beat by a better team. Would it made a difference? I'm not sure. You know, for me, I always say, if I'm going into a game where I'm a little bit tired, all it is for me, it's a shorter shift. If my normal shift is 45 seconds or a minute, I just make my shift shorter. And so I don't need to step on the ice as long. I've always said this, and I can always manage playing a little bit tired. In fact, I love playing happy. Why am I happy? Because I'm having a good time. And so some say, yeah, it might've made a difference. I don't know if it would have made a difference. But what what made a difference, obviously, is that the Canadians were going to switch goaltenders in game two. They were going to actually bench Ken Dryden. Bunny LaRock was set to start that game. Then he got hit in the head during warm-ups by a, by a, a shot from Doug Risebrow during warm-ups. So Dryden goes back in and, and then they win the next four. But... I assume like most of the younger guys on that team, and there were a lot of younger players. I mean, you know, Phil was there and, and uh, Carol Vadney was there, but it was a generally a pretty young team. Um, I, I guess Steve Vickers was still there, but it was a young team. Guys were 21, 22, 23. A lot of guys had come in the 76, 77, 78 drafts. So I, I presume that most of you guys thought that after losing, what a great year. Yeah, we lost the finals, but we'll be back again. And obviously you weren't. And then before I ask you about that, the team changed so dramatically in November of the following season when you traded for Barry Beck. Big, big star defenseman, but you traded Hickey and you traded Deblois and you traded McEwen. Uh, three guys, three young guys who were part of that core that got you to the finals. And I'm wondering, A, after the 79 finals, were you one of those guys that thought, oh, we'll get here again? And B, how much did the trade of Beck, even though you got the best player in the trade, how much did the trade where you, where you got Beck, how much did it change the culture in the room, the personality of the room, or did it not change it at all? Well, the reason I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why we went so deep in the playoff was the character of the team. I mean, we were like brothers. And so now you, you disrupt that team, that brotherhood, it does make a difference. Having said that, you're looking at Barry Beck and he's a monster of a man. You're thinking, and he's a defenseman. You're thinking, well, this could work and you don't know. And at the time, I'm not a type of guy that's going to try to analyze and dissect everything. I show up and I play and I play hard and I think positive and you think you're going to win again. So at the time, I wasn't all emotional over the trade. I just knew what got us there. And when you look back, you think, you know, what happened? Because things started to change. It wasn't the same anymore. And so possibly, yes, you know, you see, you see coaches, you see managers, they're always, they're looking at what they have on paper and they think we need to change this and that on paper, like a player and a player name. A lot of times what they don't think of and they don't really think it through, it's the heart of the team, the character of the team. 
And they forget about that. I, you know, if you were to ask most players that I think most guys would say, you know what, that was a mistake. We got to the finals. Let us try it again. There was no reason for them to have to do what they did. In retrospect, yes. But at the time, Barry Beck was such a huge get for the Rangers. And and I recognize what you're saying, that sometimes the piece just doesn't quite fit, although Beck certainly fit. But, you know, you you put in a piece and there's something just a little bit off. But I bet you that 20, however many teams there were back then, 21, 24, I don't remember, 21 out of 21 GMs would have traded for Barry Beck. And and the thing was, too, remember that the previous year in 79, he had been on Team NHL on the Challenge Cup. And so he had showcased himself at the Garden and people were salivating over the possibility he could get this. How old was he at the time? 22, 23, something like that. 24, maybe at the oldest. It is very, very difficult to criticize the Rangers for pulling off that deal. I know at the time I thought it was a great deal. Um, I, I thought it was a steal you know maybe if things had if if maybe if the next few years you hadn't been in the same division as the islanders you know you would have gotten a little bit farther so let's go ahead for a couple of years 82 83 is your final season with the rangers in your first go round at least then you're traded was it a shock were you expecting it i showed up in training camp that last season out of shape. It was my fault. Normally, I show up in camp in great shape for whatever reason. I uh, And I think this happens with a lot of players. You start having a little extra money, some extra toys, and you're feeling very confident about yourself. That training wasn't as important to me. I was thinking, you know what? I'll be just fine. Well, I went through a summer where I didn't train as hard, show up in training camp, not as good a shape. Herb Brooks identified it right away. And I think with Herbie, he appreciated the fact that I scored 40 goals and I was one of his go-to guys, but he didn't appreciate what I was doing off the ice because occasionally he would bring in me in the office and uh, he would discuss that thing that he'd see me on page six. So it was my own fault. I set myself up. And right after training camp, in fact, Nick Fatio came to me in training camp, says, hey, Dukes, I got a message for you from Herb. Not Herb directly. He says, listen, regardless of what you did last year, if you don't start performing now, you're going to have a hard time. And sure enough, I ended up in the third line. It was like he was setting me up to fail so he would find a way to trade me. And that's exactly what happened. Was I shocked? Wasn't shocked. Was I disappointed? Yes, in a big way. And so, uh, especially when I find out it's Detroit, if that would have been my, that would have not been my first choice going to Detroit. Although it's probably one of the better things that happened for me. Cause you know, often when you get traded, it's a team that doesn't want you, but it's another team that really wants you. And so they were about to draft Stevie Eiserman and they were looking for a guy that can play on the right side. So once I got to training camp, I was fine. And I had made a decision that I'm not going to let happen what happened the summer before where I was totally out of shape. I didn't train hard that summer, I trained hard, showed up in, in Detroit and I made good with my, t- with my time there. So sometimes, you know, a door will close, another would open, and that's what happened. Would I have liked to have played 10 years as a New York Ranger? Absolutely. That is one of my big disappointments. But it is what it is. Sometimes you just have to pay the price. You mentioned your number of games with the Rangers and being traded from the Rangers being a major disappointment. But a player you actually never played with, but no, I'm sure very well. Or maybe you actually were with him in Detroit for a bit. I'm not sure. Uh, Brad Park. I have uh, written about this a number of times. I brought it up again on Sunday that I am uh, that I believe that it is time and is well past time for the Rangers to retire Parks number two. You know, I, I think from those teams, those those teams from Amel's years. You know, you've got the gag line. Rattel 
Hatfield and Gilbert, the three guys are up there in the ceiling. Uh, you've got Jockerman, he's up there, and you've got Park, and he's not. And there were five guys there that were special, and he is one of the five, and he's the only one of the five who's not up there. That's my feeling about it. I think he's the greatest, the second greatest defenseman in, in Rangers history behind Brian Leach. Um, he was the second greatest defenseman of his era behind Bobby Orr. And I'm just wondering, as a, as a former Ranger, how you feel about Brad Parks, number two. I've had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with him, and it started in uh, in Detroit, where when I went to Detroit, they brought him in. And I would say, when you say someone's on his uh, last legs, <laughs> he was actually playing on one leg. That one knee was pretty bad, but he was still an awesome player. A really, uh, Not only did I appreciate having him as a teammate, but him and I have become friends. Uh, he's probably one of the smartest hockey guys that I know when it comes to talking in the game and understanding the game. Uh, when he had retired as a player in Detroit, he became coach. And so I had the pleasure of having him as a coach also. He didn't coach very long, which I thought that he was going to have a long coaching career only because of his knowledge. Uh, so when I look back at Brad Park as a New York Ranger. I didn't see him a whole lot as a New York Ranger. I just know about him and I know his numbers and I can speak to uh, his competitive uh, level. And he he's, uh, he's one player. The only thing that I think that uh, bothers people is that he went and spent eight years in Boston. So it was eight years in New York, I believe, eight years in Boston. And I think that might be that one thing that's holding him back. Had he had played most of his career in New York, I think it'd be an automatic. But having said that, absolutely, I agree with you that he's well-deserving between him and Brian Leach, the two all-time great defensemen for the New York Rangers. And uh, I would love to see his number up there. Thanks, Dukes. This was an interesting role reversal here. So, you know, maybe we'll try it again next week or actually maybe next week you can resume your role as the host. Yes, this was fun. Thanks. And my next guest is not a hockey player, although he does play hockey. He's a friend of mine, comedian, actor, born and raised in the New York area. Welcome to the show, Chris Roach. Chris, welcome. What's up, dude? How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Um, like everyone else, we all have our stories about being at home, spending time more at home, and uh, trying to figure out ways to uh, stay busy, be happy. I'd love to hear about what life is like for you right now. Once a day, I go out into my car in the driveway, and I lock the doors, and I let out a primal scream. And then, <laughs> then I go back into the house. <laughs> okay, have you been working on yourself at all? Well, I've been doing some writing and uh, sleeping, but other than that, you know, just trying not to drive my wife crazy. But I'm getting a lot of I'm getting a lot of home cooked meals. I tell you, which is great because you know we're traveling on the road a lot. It's a lot of uh, fast food. It's nice to have some home cooked meals. Part of what we're going through right now is uh, it, there's this awareness that uh, we all need to be working on our immune system, having to deal with the virus. Is there anything that your wife has been doing for you? Uh, as she introduced juicing at all for you? Oh, juicing? Yeah, yeah, we've been juicing. And uh, my stomach is still getting adjusted to, adjusted to it, if you know what I mean. Because <laughs> I'm doing some juicing myself in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> now, you uh, you did an album. It's called Roast Motel. So what was that all about? Where could we find it? You can get it on uh, Pandora or iTunes and uh, recorded it here on Long Island, which was uh, always interesting because there's always uh, some drunks that want to just 
instruct you. That's why you always record it twice. We always record it twice because between the two tapings, we can get one good album. So part of, uh, before we get into hockey, because I know you're a big Ranger fan and you grew up with hockey, you've played some. Before we get into that, I would love to know what it was like for you growing up because you got into comedy. What is it about comedy that had you so interested? Well, I got into, I got into comedy uh, 16 years ago, stand-up. I was really just trying to get rid of a, a public speaking fear where I was taking these college courses and like, man, I have a bad public speaking fear. And I would start taking these, uh, this one organization called Toastmasters. They're all over the country. They're all over the world, actually. You could find these little groups that meet in libraries and you work on your public speaking. And I mean, I was always classic comedian in school, but it wasn't until I started to attack this public speaking thing. And then I started hitting some open mics. And, you know, like just like being in high school, I got addicted to that laughter again. So how were you introduced to acting? Because I know you started doing a little bit of acting, uh, some of the soap operas. And then you got the big break after Kevin James saw you during your act and you ended up on his on his reality show. Kevin can wait. So how did that all get started? Well, that was, uh, well, the acting, I I started taking acting probably two years into stand-up, again, just to boost my confidence and to, and to uh, get out of my head and just, you know, be, be a little more uh, creative on stage. And I thought that would help. And I ended up falling in love with acting. Next thing I know, I'm playing a mental patient on a soap opera. You know, I tend to get, I tend to get cast as the uh, not-so-smart guy, I guess you could say. Not-so-smart guy. I went to... I was I was playing a mental patient on a soap opera. I was in an off Broadway play of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I played a mental patient, and then I, one day I was I was uh, performing on a Wednesday at a comedy club by my house when Kevin walked in and he saw me. I was just about to go on stage when he walked in. He sat down and I saw him. Uh, you know, of course I'm freaking out on the inside and I just tried to stay calm. And I went up there, did ten minutes. And I didn't I didn't meet him that night, and I also didn't know it at the time that that ten minutes got me on his show. How did that relationship chris developed with kevin james I, I imagine there's kind of the resemblance you're both new yorkers long island guys you know i don't know if you're a mets fan but i know kevin's like diehard mets fan uh i assume he's a ranger fan too so i guess you guys shared so much in common that it kind of clicked immediately yeah we actually had a friend in common we grew up about 15 minutes apart never knew each other of course i knew who he was and we actually at different times bounced at one of the same bars over in port jefferson here on long island so yeah there were a lot of connections there but i i, I think we hit it off because i'm just i'm just a mellow guy and He's behind the scenes very mellow as well. We just kind of click. You know when you have that person, you could go on a long road trip, and if you don't talk for like an hour, it's okay. It was like one of those things where you just relax and enjoy each other's company. How did that develop over the years with Kevin Can Wait? Because you do the show with him for three years. I mean, it must have been like, I'm just thinking of the SpongeBob, like the, the two best friends anybody could have. I, I imagine that really developed doing the show with him. It must have been a cool experience. Yeah, it developed doing the show. And also um, when he asked me to go on the road with him, that was, I was a little nervous at first. I was a little nervous at first but after like after a couple days on the road with him it was like we were just just good friends it was you know when i was on the show i could never watch any of his movies i could never watch like king of queens reruns because i was trying to get to know him as a person and when i saw him like on tv it would freak me out a little bit and so let's go into your 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 hockey and your hockey back your hockey background because you and i have uh, spent some time at ranger games and i know that uh, you try to take in as many games as possible you had an opportunity to be a, either an Alder fan or a ranger fan How'd you become a Ranger fan? I went through hell as a kid being a Ranger fan growing up in South 
Suffolk County, Long Island. The Islanders are winning all the Stanley Cups back then, and uh, it was a tough time for me. And I, I don't even think I owned that much Ranger apparel, but everybody knew what a diehard Ranger fan I was, and I became a diehard. My dad being a uh, NYPD uh, police officer, sometimes he would get stationed, I guess, near the garden where he would bring me home sticks. I remember we had Espo stick, we had uh, Hanlon stick. I became a fan. I started watching, believe it or not, I started watching Ranger games because I, I heard about this guy, Nick Fatiu, and it was like, it must have been like 77. And I would start turning on the games just to see who he was going to go after next. He was, he, he was, he was always going after somebody. <laughs> I started watching. I'm like, this guy's crazy. He just got on the penalty box and he's going after somebody else. When you look at today's game, the way he's playing now, do you find it? Are you getting the same kind of entertainment value? You know what's so funny you, you asked that? Because I was watching, you know, Jones and Fahaki over here. So I ended up watching two nights ago. I was watching the seventh game Stanley Cup final, Edmonton in 1988, the Oilers versus the Boston Bruins. And of course I knew the outcome, but it was, I was still trying to pretend that I didn't know the outcome. It was exciting. But I couldn't believe back then the slashing and the tripping and the goaltender interference. That was It was just part of the – I guess with today's game, you become sensitive to that stuff because, you know, they always call it. But back then, man, they let – man, did they let the players play. But the, the tomahawk slashes <laughs> – which is part of the game. Where were you in 94 when, when they won the Stanley Cup? Did you have an opportunity to go see any of those games during those uh, playoff games? Oh, my God. Not live, but I watched every game in the basement of my father's house. And then after game six, we lost in Vancouver, and uh, the Rangers were coming back. My father comes downstairs one time when I'm watching TV, and he turns the light on, and he points to the wall. He goes, where did this hole come from? He goes, wait a second. And where did this hole come from? And this hole, because I was such a lunatic back then that I had holes on the wall from throwing the remote control into it. One was named after Pavel Barre. There was another Stefan Richet. There was a lot there was a lot of games during that Stanley Cup run where the other team tied up, tied the game up within seconds. I watched every game at my dad's house and then when he saw those holes, he goes, You can find somewhere else to watch game seven because I don't want to see what you're gonna do to my house if they lose. So I ended up watching it at my brother's house. So who would have been who would have been your, your favorite player to watch back then? I love Brian Leach. Brian Leach back then was my favorite. Brian Noonan. Of course, Matt. Kovalov, too. I think Kovalov, too. Kovalov, it was, it was exciting to watch Kovalov back then, during 94, because, you know, he's a rookie and so much potential. And how about in today's game, in today's team, when you're watching, I'm sure you're very patient, as everyone else is. It's a young team. Uh, they keep getting better. Who are the players that you're enjoying watching now? Oh, of course, you know, I'm waiting for Capo uh, Caco to just come out. It's like you're just waiting, like, every game, like, I feel like he's about to click. So I'm excited watching him. This year, I think Kreider, I think Kreider is my, one of my favorite players on the team. So I'm, I was very glad to see they signed him. And I got to talk to him again after one of the games. And I said, hey, Chris, what's going on? He's like, hey, what's going on? I said, you remember me? He goes, of course I do. He goes, you're the only one who sits in that section that actually watches the game. <laughs> So, so what do you envision? What do you think is going to happen with the league? I, I'm sure the league wants to be able to finish the season off and have some playoff hockey. What do you envision you think might happen here come July or August? Man, I, I, God, I hope they stop playing again soon. I hope they finish the season. There was the talk about, even before the season was suspended, there was that talk about 
them playing without without a I guess an audience without without people. I was kind of up in the air about that. Like, how would it be? Because when you go to a hockey game live, it's so electric, it's so incredible, and uh, of course the fans are a big part of that. But I, I wonder how it would be even for the players. Like sometimes the energy, uh, I'm sure you being a player, it, it gets in, it gets it gets it gets in you, and 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 a lot of times, I mean, how do two players fight without the without an arena going crazy? You know, I have. Uh, I'm hoping that in a month from now, things will start mellowing out where maybe we could get back on track and start playing some games again. Yeah, I'd have to say, uh, speaking uh, for myself, uh, the game is the game. Once we step on the ice, yes, we prefer to have 18,000 people there rooting for us. But once we step on the ice, we all become kids and we can play. I mean, we will try to beat each other. We will try to win. We'll do whatever it takes to win. Because at the end of the day, we know we're being seen because it would be live on TV. So for, for a lot of the players, I think the compete level would be about the same. It just wouldn't be the same for the fans. And so I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that uh, sometime in August that uh, play will resume, whether it's live or not. But I believe I believe it's going to happen. And guys like yourself who are really hungry for watching the game, uh, I think it's going to happen. So Chris, it's always good talking with you. Wish you well. All right, guys. All right, dude. Talk to you soon, brother. for episode 17 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer Jake Brown for producing the show. Subscribe to the show, rate us five stars, and write a nice review wherever you listen. You can also follow me on Twitter at RonDuguay10. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe out there. Chat with you all next week.